Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 129 of X-Lapsed, and uh, we are in the home stretch of this uh, all X-Attends thing, aren't we? Uh, if the recording and releasing schedule is uh, manages to keep up what it has been since the start of this project, we will be done with X-Attends by the end of this week, so... Looking forward to that, looking forward to, uh, to getting into something a little bit new, you know, on the other end of this, see where, uh, see where everything shakes out. But uh, let's get into today's book here. This is Cable, Volume 4, Number 6. At a January 2021 cover date, the story is X of Swords, Chapter 19, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Phil Noto. Letters, VCs, Josebino, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bisa white Zabolski, cover price $3.99, and this one went on sale November 18th of 2020. Now we open, of course, with our chapter break quote page here, and this time it comes from Cyclops. And it's just him repeating that there's, you know, no, re- no need to rush the future, because it'll be here quick enough as it is. And that's something that he had told Kid Cable a few issues back. I think, uh, I think Kid Cable had wanted to... Do something with the Space Knights, but Corsair was coming for dinner, and uh, Cyclops was like, hey, you know, settle your tea kettle a bit. Uh, the future will be here quick enough. Now, we open the comics content at the Quiet Council, where the bigwigs are awaiting the arrival of Mr. Sinister. Now, he stopped to grab a new cape before reporting in. Before things come together here, Xavier wonders if the captains should be present before Sinister gives his report. Now, Magneto suggests that maybe maybe they hear him out before running it down the chain of command here. They'll, they'll decide when they know exactly, exactly what we're chewing on here. Xavier agrees, but he does want Jean to be there. Uh, she's not here right now, it's worth noting. Uh, he attempts to give her a call psychically, but she doesn't respond. We will see her before the end of the issue, though. Call me Kate wonders aloud why, with all the chaos happening, Sinister stopped to replace his cape. And this leads to Sassy Sinister questioning some of Kitty's own fashion choices, which really shouldn't work in this situation, but uh, totally does. Uh, Emma cosigns Sinister's point, which also shouldn't work, but it does. It's, it's, actually, it's actually quite humorous. So, Sinister finally begins his sit-rep here. He's telling, telling what's going down. He starts by telling the Council that they were right in forbidding anyone to head into Otherworld. And, uh, you know, forbids a strong word. Uh, The info page that we got about the rules of entering Otherworld kind of just discouraged it, but his point is well taken. Kitty cuts him off, claiming that if their people are in danger, then they'd best go in there and save them all, right? Sinister plainly states that none of the Krakoans who headed into Otherworld with a sword will ever be coming back. What's more, the Iraqi mutants will chew through Saturnine and Otherworld and unfortunately, their next stop is going to be Krakoa. He suggests that they blow up the gateway to slow this spread. Xavier reminds him that this isn't currently an option. Krakoa has spoken, and Krakoa seems to like the gate. The external gate, that is. Sinister leaves, wondering if this might cost them everything. Double-page spread of creds, and then our roll call, and it's... It's everybody. <laughs> it's everybody again. Uh, Saturnine, of course, and we got our Krakoan champions. Magic, Kid Cable, Cypher, Storm, Wolverine, and X-Doubt, Betsy Britton, Captain Avalon, Apocalypse, and Gorgon. Then we have the Iraqi champions. War, the White Sword of the Ivory Spire, the, an X-Doubt Creepy Summoner, Red Root the Forest, who I thought was like stuffed in a jar a few uh, issues back, Solemn, Death, who I thought Storm killed a few ch- chapters back, 
Iska the Unbeaten, Bay the Blood Moon, Annihilation, and Pog Ur Pog. You could tell there's a lot of characters because we didn't even get a mention of any of the Quiet Council who were here, you know? Usually they, they shoehorn anybody who just makes the tiniest appearance into the roll call page. So we don't get Sinister, we don't get Kitty, we don't get uh, Professor X, we don't get Magneto, but we get all the competitors. Now let's get back to comics here, and we are in the Fallen Kingdom of Dryador. And it's time for our next bout. It's a fight to the death again. And it pits our titular hero against the newlywed Bay the Blood Moon. Now, the fight starts in Cable immediately proves to be a better fighter than Bay. It's like it's pretty academic where this is headed. Bay is knocked to the ground, and Cable is but a single stroke away from being proclaimed the victor, and also, you know, killing her because one shot and she's dead. Before he can do so, though, he catches a glimpse of Doug Ramsey, who is Bay's new husband. And upon seeing Doug, he hesitates. Bay strikes back and reverses things, and before he knows it, Cable is face down in the mud with Bay stood over him, just about to run her blade through his back. Doug jumps up and yells to stop. You know, she's already won. She doesn't actually need to kill Kid Cable. And Saturnine agrees. You see, she looks at Cable and deduces that, uh, well, you know what? His spirit's already dead, and that's good enough for her. So our score is now Arako 18, Krakoa 6. Cable walks away from the fight, and he psychically calls out to his parents, which uh, I didn't think they could do, but in this situation, he, he sort of can. He catches them up on the contest, and he gives them the score, you know, Arako 18, Krakoa 6. And uh, it's funny, he's sure that the original old man Cable would have been more of an asset to Krakoa here, which is a uh, pretty interesting thread that we'll maybe tug a little bit later on. Uh, he also suggests that Saturnine is screwing with everybody. And, you know, duh, of course. Saturnine actually allows this conversation to continue for a few moments before, with a snap of her fingers, she severs the connection. In Krakoa, Scott breaks down. He doesn't want to lose his son again. Uh, again, again, I suppose. Gene tells him that they can fix things, and they kiss. And, you know, if we didn't already know that Gene was banging Wolverine on the side, this scene might have meant a little bit more, at least to me. Jump back to Otherworld, and Saturnine introduces the next fight. We got no time to waste. Now, this is another to-the-death deal, and it's going to pit the White Sword versus Gorgon. Now, the White Sword calmly sits down, and he tells Gorgon that he'll only face him after he beats all 100 of his warriors. Remember, the White Sword charges into battle with the 100 warriors every day. Uh, and so, over the course of the next several pages, Gorgon slices through 13 of the 100, which somehow actually gives Krakoa the lead on the scoreboard. It's Arako 18, Krakoa 19. At this point, the Horseman War pleads with the White Sword to intervene himself, and so he does. He says he only he just wanted to hear the horseman grovel, so he uh, he was going to sit it out until someone begged him, and here we are. We have our white blade, our white sword here. He lifts his blade. He walks over to Gorgon, and I mean Gorgon's had the absolute dog stuff beaten out of him to this point. I mean he's he's had to fight 13, 13 warriors at this point. Now there's no way that Gorgon will be able to win this fight. And so, he basically just presents himself to the White Sword to be taken out. And, well, that's exactly what happens. The White Sword calmly runs Gorgon through with his blade. And, uh, Gorgon's dead. Apocalypse actually applauds this, claiming that this is how a mutant dies. So, looks like we have a tie. It's a Rocco 19, Krakoa 19, and so we're gonna need a sudden-death tiebreaker... Anybody have any guesses as to who might be in this match? Anybody? I mean, they didn't they didn't telegraph this at all, right? Well, if you guessed Apocalypse vs. Annihilation, because really, who else was it going to be? You'd be right. And that is where we leave it. It's, not, it's the end of the story, but it's not the end of the issue, because we have an info page, and oh boy, it's an info page. It's a complete X of Swords battle log. And we've got 25 bouts, and what do you say we go through them again? <clears throat> Let's see. 
first battle. It's a battle to first kill. And uh, I believe when we when we uh, when we witnessed this fight here, it was a you know fight to the death. But they changed it here to fight to first kill. And it's Iska the Unbeaten versus Betsy Britain. Of course, Iska won. Betsy went to bits. Two trial by wedding. Bay the Blood Moon versus Cipher. They both got points there. Three, the contest of arms, which was arm wrestling. That pitted Pog or Pog versus Magic, and Pog or Pog won. Four, a race to the death. And this is uh, the one where we kind of played with the words there. It was the first person to die wins. And it was the creepy summoner versus Wolverine. And the summoner won because he died. Five, contest of cups, which was the drinking contest. Storm versus Wolverine. Kurokawa got the points. I don't remember who won. <laughs> Maybe they both won. Uh, six, the amputation fight. Solemn versus War. And this one where so- Wolverine subbed in for Solemn, and the winner was Solemn. Well, it was actually Wolverine, but Solemn got the points. Uh, bout seven was unarmed combat, which pit Pog or Pog versus Magic, and Magic won. Eight, torture endurance. War versus Cable, Captain Avalon, and Gorgon. The winner was War. Nine, the contest of boulders, which was like that Sisyphus thing where they're rolling a stone up a hill. It was Death, Iska the Unbeaten, and Pogger Pog versus Magic, and Arako got the points. Uh, Battle Beneath the Waves, Iska the Unbeaten and the White Sword versus Gorgon, Arako got the points. The contest of plates, which was the eating contest, all that gross stuff, brains and eyeballs and stuff. Redroot the Forest versus Cable, Captain Avalon, and Cypher. The winner was Krakoa, so uh, I guess they changed it back. Um, when we read that scene, it said Krakoa got the points, but then when we read another info page, it said that Arako got the points, and, and the art did look like Redroot was going to win that one because the other guys looked like they were going to throw up. Redroot was just relishing in the in the grossness. And here, it looks like they changed it back, so there's been a topsy-turvy bout here. Twelve was the Lord of the Dance, and that was Bay the Blood Moon and War versus Cypher and Wolverine. Arako got the points. Labyrinth Escape, which was the MC Escher-looking thing with the stairways going all, all, all which way, every which way. Red Root the Forest and Pog Urpog versus Captain Avalon and Storm. Arako got the points. The Jigsaw Battle, which was putting together a puzzle. Uh, we didn't see that it was Death and War. Uh, on the uh, Arako side here, uh, all we saw was Gorgon and Magic putting together a puzzle, and I assumed it was just a gimme, right? I figured it was just, oh, Krakoa versus Krakoa. Krakoa gets the points. I didn't know that Death and War were part of this. Looks like they were. Whatever the case, Krakoa got the points. Fifteen, the contest of Kotor, the fashion show. Red Root the Forest and War versus Storm and Wolverine. Arako got the points. 16, Blight Spoke Navigation, which was that scene where we saw Magic and Cable looking at a map, and they looked very confused. Uh, and they were against Iska the Unbeaten. Iska the Unbeaten got the point. 17, the Foot Race Through the Crooked Market. Red Root the Forest versus Captain Avalon. We saw that one. Red Root the Forest won after Saturnine set the, sick the Furies on Captain Avalon. 18, the Contest of Letters, which was the Spelling Bee. We have Bay the Blood Moon, Death, and Pog or Pog versus Cypher and Magic. Arako got the points when Magic misspelled Magic. 19, Rumination Endurance, which was that Magic Mirror thing that had the White Sword and Wolverine facing everyone they've ever killed here. And the first to look away lost, and the winner there was the White Sword. 20, Resist Temptation, which was uh, having sex with a rock. Uh, Iska the Unbeaten in War versus Gorgon, Magic, and Wolverine. Gorgon could not control his hormones. He really, really wanted that rock, so Arako got the point. 21, killing a kitten. Captain Avalon versus War. War got the point. 22, drawing first blood. Death versus Storm. Storm won, so I guess Death's maybe not dead then? Maybe he is, I don't know. Whatever the case, she drew first blood. 23, the battle to the death. Bay the Blood Moon versus Cable. We just saw that. Bay won by killing Cable's spirit. 24, the 100 to 1. Uh, that's the White Sword versus Gorgon. The winner, technically the White Sword, but Gorgon did manage to grab 13 points for his side before dying. 25 is the final challenge, and that is Annihilation versus Apocalypse. The winner is, well, hopefully we'll find out 
next episode when we look at X-Men number 15. But considering it's an X-Men issue, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we get another entire issue of Iraqi flashbacks. Let's hope not. (laughs) But uh, we'll worry about that next time. Let's talk about this issue, which was much more like it. Uh, Last issue of Cable was uh, quite weak. Uh, Definitely a victim of the crossover. Uh, It was... It didn't get... It didn't get the usual, you know, adequate room to breathe like the cable issues have been getting. Uh, we, it didn't get to show its charms. It was just very, very um, utilitarian. It was just like, okay, we need to get these points in here. Let's get them in there. Don't worry about being funny. Don't worry about being interesting. Don't worry about being entertaining. Just make sure these things are hit. This was much more like it here. Um, let's go through the issue. Let's go through it here. Uh, we'll open with Sinister's report. His deniability here is key here. He is presenting, he's protesting everything in the name of a safer Krakoa, right? He's projecting loyalty. He's worried about his fellow mutant when we know that he's, that he's a turncoat, that he's a bastard, right? I mean, he killed his entire team. He went to Araco under false pretenses, uh, but he's able to deny it because of how subtly that whole story has been weaved. I mean... He can he can deny that he even wanted to go in the first place because he because he protested it. He lost a vote. You know he swung the vote, but he protested the vote. I really really like this. I'm shocked that this you know sassy sinister is winning me over here, and it's nice to see that there's more to him than just the sass because it felt like he was being very distilled. Right? They were taking away a lot of the depth to the character. It's just like, okay, he's silly looking. Let's have him act silly. Let's have him act flamboyant because he looks very flamboyant. Here, we're getting that depth where it's like, sure, he could be looked at as a joke, but don't mess with this guy because he is, uh, he's, he's got his methods and he's got his goals and he won't be denied. Right? I think, uh, Really, really well done. I think he's playing the the Quiet Council like a fiddle and doing a fantastic job of it. Just a really, really strong open, right? When we get past that and into Otherworld here, we've got Cable fighting Bay the Blood Moon. Now, Cable, it's funny here because if you're following all the shows on this channel, you'll know that we're looking at the Extermination miniseries uh, as part of our Sunday special series. And in that, um, well, let, let's get to, let, let me preface here. Kid Cable here actually says that Old Man Cable would have known what to do here. He probably wouldn't have hesitated upon seeing, you know, Doug Ramsey's big doe eyes, right? He would have killed Bay the Blood Moon because that was the job, you know? And it's funny, in reading Extermination right now, the whole reason Kid Cable came back is because he thought Old Man Cable was being too soft. He was being too lenient. He was letting things go. He was not taking care of business when he should have. He wasn't maintaining the time stream. He was uh, he was allowing the time-displaced original five to exist in the present day. When, I mean, his whole gimmick was that he shouldn't be allowing that kind of stuff to happen. At least that's what we were told in that story. I mean, cable and time travel is a very fast and loose sort of a, sort of a uh, you know, line item. But... The point of the story is that Kid Cable went back to retire Old Man Cable because he had gone soft. And here we're flipping the script where Kid Cable is realizing that, you know, maybe Old Man Cable wasn't that soft. Maybe he would have done what needed done, right? And uh, just seeing that reflection of himself and his own softness. Now, we could talk about things like, is this the Krakoa effect? Is Kid Cable growing up in this paradise? And, I mean, Wolverine mentions it every time Every time he gets the opportunity. Krakoa might be making these mutants soft. It might make them feel a little too safe. So we have a Cable who is raised in the, the, in the far-flung future fighting Apocalypse. Or we have Kid Cable who is growing up in paradise. It, it's an interesting... Uh, it's an interesting thing to think about here because he's not going to have that battle hardness that cable had because he they're experiencing two different youths here their their adolescences are very different 
I really like this here because uh, we and we didn't dwell on it. I'm dwelling on it far longer than the story did, but I like that it's mentioned, especially considering this is Cable's own book, and maybe this will be something that gets revisited once we're out of the uh, the crossover, right? This could be something where he doubts himself every once in a while, and he questions whether or not he did the right thing. I don't know if it'll lead to old man Cable coming back. I don't know if that's even something that we want, but I like the idea. I like the doubt. I like him kind of holding himself up against himself, you know, uh, just just a, a version of himself that had different experiences. It's really, really good stuff. In that same scene, he talks to Cyclops and Jean, right? I thought that, you know, telepathy was a no-go in Otherworld at this point. So I'm not sure. I mean, we can talk about Saturnine, right? Saturnine is definitely screwing with people. She's letting people do exactly what she wants them to do. So maybe she just allowed it. Maybe she allowed for Cable to check in with Scott and Jean because she wanted them to know how badly this was going for Krakoa. You know, she wanted she wanted Cable to give them the score and to tell them that, hey, it's pretty much hopeless. The uh, the interdimensional witch queen has it out for us. She is running up the points for the other side. Everything is fast and loose. Maybe she wanted Cyclops and Jean to know that. And then when we when we go to Scott and Jean, they're just like Jean's like, we'll fix this. Well, how how are they going to fix it? I, I, the way I'm thinking, there are a couple of different options here. The first one is the invasion. Uh, we we had Cyclops talking to Magic while they were at the you know the X of Swords action figure display playset before they went into Otherworld pre-stasis, and they were talking about trying to get a mental link so they could be apprised of everything and they can maybe send mutants in there. They could send Krakoans in there to even the odds or just to overwhelm, right? Because I mean they are fighting. They're fighting warriors, but there's an army behind them here with the Amenthi demons and stuff. So maybe there'll be an invasion. Or, I mean, we did spend that last issue of Cable on the sword uh, satellite. And there was a door with weird generic Hickman aliens behind it. I would have to assume that there's a reason that we saw that. So maybe Scott and Gene are going to do something with that door and those aliens behind it. To maybe invade that way Maybe, I don't know But, uh, I mean, I don't think we would have gotten the scenes If they were never going to be revisited again I don't think that that one that last issue of Cable was strictly Like a backdoor pilot for uh, the new sword ongoing I think there probably has to be something that will, uh, That'll bloom from there Let's talk about the White Sword Let's talk about the White Sword here he sits down and basically hands Krakoa a tie, right? I mean, they were they were down by 12 points, and this was battle 24 out of 25. So if the White Sword went in, even if the White Sword lost, if he went in and Gorgon killed him, that would have only bought Krakoa one point. So it would have been... Well, like 18 to 7 <laughs> So we would have been There would still been no chance for the Krakoans to win Instead of doing that He sits down and sends his warriors And he doesn't send them all You know, it's like, hey, you want to face my hundred? Here's a hundred people coming to kick your ass He doesn't do it that way He sends like one at a time Then maybe two at a time Maybe another two Maybe three this time And he basically just racks up the points For Krakoa here now, there's a few things here. We got to remember the White Sword's origin. He would he was fighting for Arako, but against the Amenthi demons, right? So why would he want to help the side that he's on, other than just out of the spirit of competition? You know, he's not, he's not friendly with any of these characters. He doesn't care about the horse. He hates the horsemen. You know, he's not a fan of Annihilation. He's, he spent... Years and years and years fighting Annihilation with his hundred warriors So I wonder if he was uh, maybe trying to even the odds here Because it's funny Saturnine, as I mentioned, she's screwing with everybody 
she only announces the score when Krakoa takes the lead, right? She's not giving a running commentary. She's not like saying, okay, well, he just killed one, so it's now 18 to 7, then 18 to 8, 18 to 9, 18 to 10. She waited until it was 18 to 19. And that's when she said, oh, by the way, Krakoa's got the lead. Which, uh, you know, then triggered the horseman um, war into being like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> White sword, get up, get up. You got to do some stuff here. So I wonder, I mean, everything feels like it's been planned out. And I'm, I'm talking inside the book here. Meta, I don't know. But inside the book here, uh, here we are with a tie. I mean, it couldn't be any perfect than that. We have a tie. We have the big main event coming up, which will be our tiebreaker. At least that's what we're thinking at this point. But it's interesting that uh, that the, the way it went here, the White Sword basically just handed Gorgon a bunch of points here. Very, very interesting stuff, and just more layers to this White Sword character. I see him as being very, very... Um, it's weird, because he partially, he feels conflicted, but he's so headstrong you could barely see the, con- the conflict. It's, it's good. It's good. Uh, let's talk about Gorgon. That's probably the last thing we need to talk about here. He clearly dies in Otherworld, right? With uh, Hellions the other day, um, they died in Araco, so we're kind of, you know, we we can hedge our bets there. Here, Gorgon is dead in Dryador, in Otherworld. He's dead. And, you know, if I were a betting man, um, I probably would have guessed that he would be the, for lack of a better term, red shirt of the Krakoan side going in. Because, uh, I mean, he's... He's definitely like a one of these things is not like the other when you look at everybody else who's there. So what we know is that he can be brought back, but he will be altered or scrambled, just like our friend Rockslide, right? And here's where I give you, you know, my two cents here as just being kind of ignorant to this character in the first place, because to me, Gorgon was basically a blank slate anyway. So I really can't speak to how this might change him, if it'll be better, if it'll be worse. If it'll even happen It is worth noting though That the White Sword himself said that he would restore Gorgon post-fight And like make him work for him So maybe that's our loophole Since it won't be like a standard Resurrection protocol style relivening, Right? This is gonna be maybe the White Sword using his own powers to resurrect him Like he did with his hundreds I guess we'll just have to wait and see Um What else? What else? Um The art uh, It was Phil Noto Um but I feel like Phil Noto's being rushed a little bit here. He's been doing a lot of work, a lot of books, um, and it kind of showed a little bit in this issue. A lot of uh, kind of like formless bodies and faceless heads. Um, it was still very, very nice. It just was not what it could have been. Uh, because we know that Phil Noto can... He, he can... It's like he can wave his pen and magic happens. You know, and magic with a C, not a K. Uh, here... And maybe he was a little rushed It just wasn't, uh, wasn't up to his usual uh, level of quality But uh, otherwise, I enjoyed this issue a lot uh, Very, very nice, almost a return to form But I mean, we are still hampered by the fact that we are Like 19 parts into a crossover So it's not going to be the, uh, the non-tied cable book It's going to be cable with a, with a side of X of Tens And... You know, looking at it under that sort of prism This was a very good issue Very good issue Um, I'm really starting to come around to this here I'm letting myself just not think too much Not worry too much Not be me about it And uh, and I'm enjoying it far more that way So if you're not reading Cable You should be reading Cable This is a fantastic book here Um, And I tell you, I can't wait until we get to the next issue of Cable that isn't, you know, part of this. Just just to just to go back to a book that I loved so much before uh, before we went into this crossover. So that's all I got to say about what is this Cable number uh, seven, six, whatever Cable issue it is, the one that we just talked about. That's all I got to say about it. So uh, let's head into the mailbag before we cut out of here. We got Damien talking about our dinner party two-parter in those issues of Marauders. Now he says, I'm so glad that you enjoyed this Marauders two-parter. I was worried it would have been it would have had too much otherworldliness for your liking. I found it delightful. When you said the Ara- Aracoian, Ara- 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 Iraqis, I don't know how we say this, 
uh, those bad guys got more characterization in this than in all the previous chapters combined, I instantly thought of Gorgon. He has been presented to us as an important Krakoan character, as he is a captain, but I genuinely think that this is the first time I've ever seen him be a person. I agree. I definitely agree. I think the only other spotlight we saw on Gorgon was, um, I mean, during Hoxpox, uh, Wolverine gave him a beer, which I think was supposed to be characterization. Uh, then we saw that issue where um, Magneto, Apocalypse, and Xavier went to the, uh, I don't remember which World Power Council thing it was. It was some sort of a summit. And Cyclops and Gorgon had to fight off, uh, you know, evil agents. That was all I knew about Gorgon. I've done a little bit of research on the character, and I guess he was behind that whole uh, Wolverine enemy of the state or agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. or whatever the hell it was back uh, with Mark Miller. But I, I never, I have it, I never read it, but uh, I didn't really know much about him. And it was nice to see him actually, actually act, you know, let his hair down a little bit here. Just like the, the Iraqis here. It was nice to see them as actual people and not ciphers. And, you know, cipher with an eye, of course. Because up to that point, I mean, I couldn't tell you which horseman was which. I couldn't tell you why which horseman was which. I shouldn't. T- I wouldn't be able to tell you why we should care about which horseman was which. And here they uh, they really fleshed these characters out. They made it so, you know, it, it's not so much raising the stakes, but it 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 gives us like uh, that lightning rod. It gives us a touchstone to be like, okay, well, this is that character, and this is what they do. Uh, Damien continues. I feel like I need to take some time to praise the covers. Russell Dodderman is a stone-cold genius. He can do no wrong. It's a little too late, but maybe he could run a class for the other artists on how to distinguish Emma and Saturnine. You could never mistake one for the other. Yeah, yeah, Russell Dodderman. Oh, man. He's a uh, phenomenal artist. Phenomenal artist. Uh, It's just too bad we've only had, like, the one issue where he did the interiors, that giant size, with, uh, I think it was the Emma Jean issue. And that was the only interiors that I think that I've seen from him. I, I think he did the War of the Realms, but I didn't, you know, outside of the X, the Uncanny X Men miniseries, I didn't uh, pay any attention to that. And I still haven't even read that, but I have it. Um, but yeah, I, I would love to see more out of him. His covers here are really, really wonderful. So much, uh, so much emotion. Just and, and like you said here. I look at that cover where Saturnine's holding the glass, and that's the first cover I've seen Saturnine on where I didn't go, oh, what's Emma up to? Because usually it looks so much like Emma that it's, uh, that it's distracting. Uh, Damien continues. While I'm talking about artists, I should also give some kudos to Stefano Caselli. He really has a lot to do in these two issues, and he excels. Dance is very difficult to convey in comics, and he really nails it. The movements have fluidity and continuity. He also does a great job with body language. I'm most imp- I'm most impressed with his Wolverine. He makes him so expressive and aggressive. I love it. It's true. It's true. I'm trying to think of the artist that did uh, some of the Wolverine and the X-Men stuff. Uh, Nick Bradshaw, I think. Uh, Caselli's Wolverine reminded me a lot of Nick Bradshaw's because he was able to the expressions and the just the facials, very very strong, and I mean, bordering on on comedy and like horror because like you know you know not to mess with this guy, but at the same time the face is so emotive that you can't help but to be entertained by it. Like the exaggerated uh, expression, it's just wonderful wonderful stuff here. And Caselli is definitely a big part of why those issues were so good here. They were wonderful to read, and they were also wonderful to look at. I think about that uh, that spread in the uh, the whole of the ba- Fallen Banners or whatever it was, and I was blown away by that. I thought that was just phenomenal work here. You could see, and everybody had emotion on their faces, and you could see friendships. You could see how awkward it was. You could see contention. You could see uh, stress and uh, and doubt. Wonderful stuff. Wonderful stuff. Damien continues. So many character moments throughout the throughout the issues shine. As a Storm fan, my favorite is the idea of her spending her life dancing with death. I love the idea that it's the living who have the most experience with death because they have to get through it. I've complained about Storm being underwritten, but this shows that Duggan does have an interesting take on her that bodes well for the Reign of X era. 
And yeah, that was uh, something I didn't really touch on during the uh, discussion of that issue, but you got to figure it's like who has more experience with death than people who haven't died because they've had to actually process death. They didn't die, you know, when you, when you die, you're you know, you don't really you don't have to deal with the emotions of death. You don't have to deal with the fear of death because it's over. When you survive, you have uh, you I mean you have the the cocktail of emotions that come with it. You know, you've got the Kubler Ross stuff. You've got the behavioral stuff. You've got you've got fear. You've got um, you might have guilt. You might have guilt, and that's just a huge part of it here. And having Storm tangle or tango, I guess, with death, um, so surreal, but just so perfect, so perfect, uh, really, really great. And uh, yeah, Reign of X. I I don't know if I'm looking forward to it more just to you know to get there or just. Just so we're out of X of Tens because it's... I'm ready to move on. I'm ready to move on. Uh, Damien continues, You're right in identifying Iska the Unbeaten as the standout new character. She's really developed well and her powers are presented in a way that grounds the high concept. Some really masterful work. Definitely. Definitely. Um, We talk about high concepts a lot on this program, usually in a derisive and mocking tone, but uh, I feel like... um, I feel like her whole character was high concept. She is the Brotherhood of Dada character. She's the she's someone who doesn't lose. You know, in the Brotherhood of Dada, we had the we had that character who their power was any power you haven't thought of, right? That and it, this feels kind of like that. It's like she can never lose. Here, we actually get some character to her, um, and and she's and she is grounded here in this uh, Duggan and Percy, uh, you know, two parter. Really gives the really puts flesh on the uh, on the skeleton of the gimmick, and uh, really really well done. And what's more, they somehow make her likable. You know, it's she's the turncoat, and here she is being somewhat charming, and just her like just her being amused by Cable and Magic. It's just like that scene won me over. It's because like we look at her and she should be this ruthless killer. And now she's amused. She's playing pin the tail on the pogger pog. She's just really, really well done. Really well done. Damien wraps up with, Overall, it was a wonderful two-parter. Anyway, until Jim Jaspers and Wolverine team up to create a chain of unicorn burger bars make line X lapsed. It's funny when they when they when they served the unicorn, they referred to them as like the horned beasts and I looked at them, I thought they were like hogs, you know, like some sort of like a hog hybrid. And then I realized that they were unicorns because I remember the menu. And I'm like, oh, man, they're actually grilling up unicorns. And yeah, at least Wolverine liked it. Wolverine liked it. But I thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that two-parter. That was a wonderful, wonderful two-parter that, I mean, if not for that two-parter, I'm not sure I'd be doing this episode right now because it was touch and go there for a minute. (laughs) So thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Uh, next up, we've got Evan, who's talking about Extermination, our Sunday special series. He says, Enjoyed your coverage of Extermination. I'd been curious to hear your thoughts on how it wrapped up, as I think it addressed your concerns about writers breaking toys, the original X-Men, while not erasing the story. I love the concept of bringing the original five to the present because it reversed the traditional Days of Future Past type story by making Marvel continuity the kind of dystopian future our heroes usually find themselves dropped into. It's just like our present-day heroes. Of course they would insist on staying to fix things. Potential paradoxes be darned. Let's talk about broken toys here because I think that Extermination did it right. Um, here we are, we have the original five, they're sent back to the past, their minds are wiped, but there's like a trigger in there where they, where the time loop completes, right? Where they get to the point where they, where they get to a certain point, the memories will come back. So adult Cyclops right now knows about his time in the present. You know, he knows that he went to, that they, they, they were brought forward and sent back and grew up again. So they know all that. And actually, somewhere down the line, we're going to be taking a look at an issue of... Uh, this is something that uh, Andrew in Belfast tipped me off on. There's an issue, or a couple of issues, of Champions, the uh, the ongoing right now, where Cyclops teams up with the Champions again, 
as a grown-up because he has the memories of his time with the team when he was a time-displaced teen. And uh, I'm really looking forward to doing that because I think it's going to give us a lot to talk about here. But I do appreciate that all of our characters, our time-displaced characters, or our once, at one time, time-displaced characters, maintain their memories, or they got their memories back. I feel like this was a really good way to do it because it doesn't just cancel everything out. It doesn't make it feel like we wasted our time because these experiences still inform the character. You know, they know everything that happened, no matter where in the time stream, because the loop has been closed. So I think they did a really good job of that. The concept of the original five being brought to the present, I was on board with it. I thought it was a really, really fun idea I just thought it was going to be over a lot quicker than it was because the idea is novel. The idea is novel, and I think that a lot of X-Men fans um, may not have much of a familiarity with the original team because I think a lot of a lot of fans come in with the giant size team, and if you do come in with the giant size team, you, know, you got fan favorites. You got Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Colossus, Storm. You got this just larger-than-life team that we all grew up with. To go back to the original five stuff, I mean, I've read it several times. I love the characters, but it's different, you know? It's not—it is your father's X-Men, you know, to, uh, to you know, flip a, flip a phrase there. And it's not as exciting. It's not Dark Phoenix. It's not Days of Future Past. It's not Mutant Massacre. It's— you know, the X-Men fighting Blob and then Professor X mind-wiping Blob, Blob as he walks away. It's it's a lot of that kind of stuff. So I think a lot of fans were kind of new, kind of unfamiliar with the original five in their original forms. So I thought it was a really cool idea, a really cool and novel concept, and I was really looking forward to seeing it play out because uh, I think this was around the time, and I could be totally mistaken here because from the time where I've like turned... 20 till now is like a big jumble. So Superior Spider-Man was around this time, I believe, or maybe it was right before it. And uh, I remember people were just like, people were had their pitchforks out for that. It's like, Dr. Octopus is Spider-Man? How is that? That's, that's garbage. That's never going to work. Well, it worked. And it was, I think it was the best stuff Dan Slott's ever written. I think it was a fantastic thing. It totally subverted expectations because it was just... It was just so outlandish, but it was like one of those things that's just crazy enough to work, you know? And here with the original five coming back to the present, similar thoughts, you know? It's just crazy enough to work. And it did work at first until uh, until Mr. Bendis, I think, got tired of it and decided to uh, leave that for someone else to mop up. Uh, Evan continues, The characters changing made sense to me because of what they were learning. Jean got her telepathy way way early and learned that she was the great ex-martyr, so it makes sense that she would become more aggressive. She learned that she was living on borrowed time. Very, very true. Very true. Um, And initially, that worked because there was was a level of depth to it, in my opinion, anyway. It felt like they were tempering the expectation with the experience, right? We have an expectation when we see Jean Grey. We, have, we know the character, we love the character, we have an expectation. But here we take a gene from a different time and we fill her head with everything. So she's got these experiences that she does she hasn't experienced, but the knowledge of them. So yeah, she's going to change. And I think they dealt with that really well early on. As we went forward, though, it became her sole defining characteristic. I've never read the Jean Grey uh I guess it was an ongoing series. Uh, It ran like 10 or 11 issues, I think, but I I think it was technically an ongoing. Never read that. I've heard people say that it's good, but uh, one of these days I'll get to it. But uh, I can't speak to how she was presented in that book, but in all new X-Men and in X-Men Blue, she was her aggression and her... uh, just just her hard-headedness became sort of the the soul-defining characteristic. Evan continues, Young Hank turning the magic made sense to me because he'd arrived and saw that his science-only approach hadn't produced the results he'd hoped for. I never thought of that. That's a really good point. And also, 
him seeing his older self and what a lunatic he was, uh, I think you'd probably, you'd definitely try to zag instead of zig to avoid turning into that. So that's for sure. Evan continues, Young idealistic Cyclops was a counterpoint to the -the off-the-deep-end Scott and fit in even better once present-day Cyclops was off the board. Present-day Angel was so messed up that old-school Warren wasn't redundant and, like Iceman, mostly was. Yes. Now, this was, uh, Angel was very, very weird. I I don't even, I think we need, like, a flowchart for Angel, present-day Angel, uh, because we went through the the Dark Angel saga in Uncanny X-Force, which was awesome, which was really, really awesome, but it wound up, I believe it ended with him being, like, totally brainwashed, and he was just, like, this naive Pollyanna character who was sent to the... To Wolverine's, you know, Jean Grey school as like a student because he was just such a blank slate. From there, I think, I think it's just been more of the same with him, where it's just the the Archangel part creeps in every so often and uh, just really wrecks havoc. And I think that's what we were kind of seeing even now in Hoxpox, where some days he's Archangel, some days he's just Angel. So it's very very bizarre. Now Iceman, of course, they made a pretty big change to him. Uh, Almost at the end of the the Bendis run, uh, a change that Bendis allegedly just slipped in to his script, and then convinced the uh, his editor to uh, to leave it in there, and uh, never had a plan for what to do next. So uh, that's that's the Bendis method, folks. Uh, young Cyclops, I really liked him. Uh, you know, Cyclops is my guy. Uh, I I would have liked to see more. Cyclops on Cyclops discussion um, While they were, you know, both on the board here I didn't They did the thing where he went into space uh, Young Cyclops to be with Corsair They even gave him his own Technically, I think it was an ongoing series But it only ran like nine or ten issues But I think it was technically an ongoing But uh, that was kind of boring to me I didn't think that was all that great But that is space stuff, so that is a Chris problem But, I, you know, I... I I, I don't want to keep repeating myself, but I did like the concept. <laughs> I did like the concept. It's just the execution and just how drawn out it was that really kind of made it... The seams really showed. Evan continues. But I certainly didn't read everything they were in, or even most of it. So I'm talking themes and ideas. I stayed with all new X-Men for about eight or nine issues before it got squeezed out of my rotation by other titles and dropped in on trades here and there. I liked in general the way the characters grew and went in different directions, but I didn't mind them going back, and thought extermination was a mostly fun way to accomplish that goal. As usual, none of this is to claim anybody who didn't care for the story should have. It's just my two cents on the concept and limited series. Well, first, I want to thank you for uh, listening to the Exlapsination series and for sharing your thoughts on it. That really means a lot. I never know how the Sunday special series is going to work out here. Sometimes, uh, sometimes people dig them. Sometimes people don't. Remember, we did start the, uh, we did kick off the thing with a major X, and <laughs> didn't, that didn't go so hot. Uh, that wasn't uh, anybody's anybody's favorite, but. I definitely appreciate you talking, you know, themes and ideas for the all-new, the all-new X-Men, X-Men Blue sort of uh, scenario, which, again, I I really enjoyed the ideas. I think there was a better story to tell there. Um, I... I feel like it was, you know, we talk a lot about the high concepts here with Hickman. We talked about Iska the Unbeaten just being like, hey, this is a cool idea, but what do we do with it? I don't know. We give it to someone else. They'll deal with it. With the original five, it was like Bendis had this great idea, and it was a great idea. It was a fun idea. It was very, very interesting. And then it was just like, well, what now? I don't know. We'll give it to uh, we'll, we'll give it to uh, poor Cullen Bunn. We'll let him do it. We'll let Dennis Hopeless do some stuff. We'll let them handle this because I I you know, I'm I'm busy. Uh, I think the Guardians of the Galaxy movie is coming out, so I got to get myself right in that book right now. It's just a uh, concept was it was it was an interesting concept. It definitely overstayed its welcome. Extermination was a great way to kind of have our cake and eat it too because we got the histories. We went back to we sent them back, but everything that they did still mattered. They had those experiences that they could draw upon when they need to, and that's kind of how they how they won the day. You know, young Jean talked to uh, Manon and Maxime, 
then old Gene, or I guess regular age Gene, uh, got those memories and knew how to defeat them in the present. So really well done. Kind of a best of all world situation, all things considered, because it was it was a sloppy, sloppy thing at the end there. So really good way of, uh, of tying it up and for uh, maybe putting a bow on that era. So thanks again for sharing your thoughts and, and for listening to Exlapsination here. It's, uh, we'll be wrapping that series up. Uh, this coming weekend with a, a look at Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 1 with the uh, return of uh, Cyclops, the original, the actual, adult, grown-up, that one, yeah, him, Scott. We're going to talk about that <laughs> this coming weekend. So if anybody is uh, interested in the Extermination uh, series, uh, there are going to be eight episodes to uh, to go through at, uh, at your leisure. Uh, But that is where we'll leave the mailbag for today. Uh, If anybody out there would like to write in, please, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men, and you can listen to a whole bunch of comic book podcast nonsense at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Just three chapters left to go, and then we're out into the reign of X. Looking forward to that. I hope you are as well. I'd like to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today and allowing me to be part of your day. And till next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.